Welcome to the podcast of Selmore Baptist Church in Ozark, Missouri. To learn more about our church, please visit selmorebaptist.com. And now, here's the sermon. All right, if you have your Bibles this morning, open them to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in chapter 9, verses 23 through 28. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 through 28. And to those of you who are at home this morning watching on Facebook Live, open your Bibles as well. Turn there with us. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 through 28. We continue to make our way through the book of Hebrews in a sermon series, excuse me, sermon series entitled Jesus is Better. So let's review just a little bit and bring ourselves up to speed. In last week's sermon, we learned that a last will and testament cannot go into effect until the death of the testator. In other words, the last will and testament has no authority or power until the one who established it passes away, and then it goes into force. In like manner, the New Testament that God established to save his people did not go into effect until God the Son, Jesus Christ, gave his life on the cross. Once Jesus died in our place for our sin, and then rose again, then the New Testament went into effect, and it remains in effect today. So that anyone who repents of their sin and believes upon the Lord Jesus shall be saved and have everlasting life. And if you've not put your faith in Jesus, you need to do that today so that you know when your life is over, whenever that may be, that you will spend eternity in heaven. Last week, we also talked about the importance of blood in the economy of God. We said that blood both purifies and pardons, that God established a spiritual rule from the very beginning of creation that sin requires the shedding of innocent blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no forgiveness. This is why in the Old Testament, Moses sprinkled animal blood on the book of the law and on the tabernacle and its instruments. And if you recall, on the people themselves, the blood purified and pardoned the people of their sins and made them acceptable in the sight of a holy God. And this is why in the New Testament, we must put our faith in Jesus Because in doing so, then his blood shed on the cross is applied to our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness so that we are justified before God the Father. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is the key. Now, as we move now into today's text, we're going to continue to talk about blood. And I hope none of you are getting squeamish by that. Uh, If anyone notices anyone around you start to look pale, you might get them a little bottle of water or something. But we talk about blood a lot in the church, don't we? And there's a reason for that, because blood is so very important and crucial to God's plan of salvation. But specifically, we're going to talk about the animal blood that Moses used in the Old Testament And the fact that it's now been replaced by something far more valuable and far more effective, and that is the blood of Jesus. So let's begin reading, and we're going to start just by looking at Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 23. It says, Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, 
but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. All right, here's the first point. Here's how we summarize verse 23. Animal blood was sufficient for the high priest to enter the earthly tabernacle, but something better is required for the heavenly tabernacle. When verse 23 talks about the copies of the things in the heavens, what's it talking about? Well, it's talking primarily about the Old Testament tabernacle. We talked a few weeks back about how the tabernacle itself, by its very design, told the story of Jesus and was an earthly expression of a heavenly reality. In this sense, the earthly tabernacle was a copy of things in heaven above. Now, on the subject of copies, not too long ago, I had to renew my driver's license. And I was so happy because the picture I'd had for the last 10 years was just awful. It was horrible. I was really happy to get a new license. Some of you know what I'm talking about. So I went in the license bureau and I had my picture taken. But guess what? I didn't get my permanent driver's license right away. It came in the mail a few days later. What did I use in the meantime? Well, they printed off a copy on a piece of computer paper and they gave me that copy to stick in into my wallet until the real license came. You know what? That copy was fine. It, it served its purpose. It was sufficient for a while, but it wasn't meant to last forever. And knowing the way that I treat my wallet, that piece of paper would not have held up very well in my wallet for more than a couple of weeks until it started tearing apart. But until the real license came, the copy represented the real thing. In a similar fashion, the tabernacle was a copy of the greater reality of heaven. It was never meant to be permanent. And as a mere copy, the blood of animals was sufficient to purify the tabernacle and the priests who ministered therein. That's what verse 23 tells us. In fact, it says it was necessary that the tabernacle should be purified with these things, speaking of animal blood. But verse 23 also tells us that the real thing, the heavenly tabernacle, requires something better. It requires something better than mere animal blood. Just like a piece of computer paper isn't good enough for a real driver's license, so animal blood isn't good enough for the real tabernacle in heaven above. No, the heavenly tabernacle deserves to be consecrated with something far more precious, far more valuable than the blood of calves and the blood of goats. So what then should be used? What's a better sacrifice than animals? Well, the next verses tell us. Look with me now at verses 24 through 26. It says, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have, he then would have had to suffer often, since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So here's the second point. Here's how we summarize these verses. That something better than animal blood is the sacrifice of Jesus. He is now our high priest, entering God's presence with his own blood. Not once per year, as with the earthly high priest, but once 
for all. Now, to make sure we understand the picture that's being painted for us here, let's set the scene once again, and, and let's review a little bit of what we've talked about in this series. In the Old Testament, once per year, the earthly high priest would enter the most sacred innermost room of the tabernacle known as the most holy place, or sometimes the holy of holies. And this is where the presence of God literally resided. Once inside, the high priest made atonement for the people's sins by sprinkling the blood of sacrificed animals on the mercy seat, on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, which was positioned in the Holy of Holies. The important thing for us to know is that all of these practices, all of these rituals were a picture and a preview of what Jesus does for us today. But there are some key differences. Let's look at a couple of those. First, instead of an earthly high priest mediating between us and God, Jesus is now our high priest. We no longer come to God through a man. We come to God through the God-man, through Jesus himself. Instead of Jesus entering the tabernacle made with hands, which it says is a copy of the real thing to carry out his priestly duties, verse 24 says that he enters heaven itself to appear in the presence of God for us on our behalf. And instead of coming into God's presence with the blood of animals, Jesus enters God's presence with his own blood. To put away sin, it says, by the sacrifice of himself. So what's the takeaway from all these things? Very simply this. Jesus is better. He is a better priest than the priest of the Old Testament. He serves a better tabernacle than the tent that was made with human hands because his tabernacle is heaven. And he is a better sacrifice than animals because his blood is more precious and powerful than theirs. In fact, because Jesus is a better sacrifice than calves and goats, and because his blood is more perfect and pure, he only had to be sacrificed once. Once and for all. And that does the trick forever. If this were not the case, if Jesus' sacrifice were merely like that of an animal, verse 26 tells us that Jesus would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. In other words, he would have to be crucified over and over and over. Just like the Old Testament priests sacrificed animals over and over and over. However, because Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, he only had to be sacrificed once. And that was enough to forever put away the sin of all of those who call upon his name. You see, Jesus doesn't enter God's presence just once per year like the Old Testament priests. Jesus enters God's presence once and for all through his blood shed on the cross. And because he does, we can too if we put our faith in him. Aren't you glad that the cross is enough? Aren't you glad that the cross is sufficient? Aren't you glad that all your sins... We're paid for at the cross, and we don't have to crucify Jesus again every time we sin. Or sacrifice an animal again every time we sin. God came up with a pretty amazing plan for our salvation, did he not? He is a God of great mercy and great grace. All right, now that we've established 
the greatness, the superiority of Jesus' sacrifice, I want to talk about a couple specific applications of this truth for our walk with Christ. And we find these in verses 27 and 28. It says, And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. In these verses, we find two applications of this great doctrine of Christ's sacrifice that we need to understand. First, the sacrifice of Christ was sufficient. He only needs to be offered once. Now, before we talk more about the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice, I do want to point out something very important that the author says about human life in verse 27. In order to make the point that Jesus only had to be offered once, the author compares Jesus' one death to our one death. In fact, verse 27 says that it is appointed for men, you and me, to die how many times? Once. And after this, the judgment. What's the significance of this statement? Well, for starters, clearly there is no such thing as reincarnation. We do not have multiple lives. We do not come back as another person or an animal or a tree. The idea of reincarnation is nowhere to be found in Scripture. Rather, the Scripture says that we have one life to live. We die once, and after we die, our life is over, and we are judged by God. One other important application of this truth is that there is no such thing as purgatory. In other words, there is no intermediate state after death in which we are held in limbo and can be prayed or paid into heaven by our loved ones who are still living, such as the Roman Catholic Church has historically taught. There is nothing in the Bible to suggest that anyone receives a second chance after dying. Rather, verse 27 says it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. This is why it's so very important that we do not put off making a commitment of our life to Jesus Christ. Because there are no second chances. Once we breathe our last, that's it. And the fact is that none of us know how much time that we have. So those are just a couple of things of which we need to be aware. Now, let us come back to the main point. Just as we die once, verse 28 says, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Again, once being the key word. We've already touched on this a little bit, but the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was sufficient to pay for all of our sin, past, present, and future. Here's what that means for us. We do not need to be saved again every time we sin or every time that our sin reaches a certain level. I would submit that to claim we must be resaved is akin to crucifying Jesus all over again. 
It is essentially saying that Jesus' death on the cross was not enough to pay for all of our sin the first time. And so we must crucify him again and again in our heart every time our sin gets bad enough. But scripturally, that just isn't true, nor is it necessary. Now, can Christians backslide away from God for a season? Absolutely. Can we become prodigal sons and daughters, leaving the fellowship of our Father for a time? Definitely. And we usually end up eating pig slop when we do that, don't we? You're familiar with the story of the prodigal son. Can we grieve the Holy Spirit? Can we bring shame upon the cause of Christ by our actions and by our lifestyle? Yes, undoubtedly. But if we are truly born again, the scripture is clear that God will never, ever let go of us. And in time, if we are his, we will come back to him. While we may lose fellowship for a season, we never lose relationship. We will always be his child. Why? Because Christ was offered once. And his one-time sacrifice covers all our sins. Jesus says in John 10, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. The sacrifice of Christ was sufficient. The second application of the wonderful doctrine that Christ is our great high priest is that Jesus is coming back again for those who eagerly await him. Verse 28 says, to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. The first thing I want us to note there about verse 28 is the adverb that's used. Not only are we as Christians to wait for the return of Christ, it says that we are to eagerly wait. As Christians, we are to be excited about the return of Jesus. This is a horrible illustration, but just go with me for a minute. Think how excited your dog is when you come home. And then in contrast, think how excited the cat is. We don't want to be like the cat, right? We want to be like the dog, eagerly waiting for the return of our master, just watching the door. Our dog lies in the floor and watches the door for Rachel to come in. She doesn't care if I'm there or not, but she likes to know when Rachel is there. And she watches for her. And when she comes in, her, her tail just wags like crazy and her tongue's hanging out of her mouth and she's just fidgeting and dancing all around. That's how we should be with the return of Christ. Throughout the New Testament epistles, the posture that we see among the apostles and the posture that they teach to the churches is to live with a daily expectation of Christ's return. To always keep one eye on the sky, so to speak. And with that, to live in such a way that if Christ came back today, that you would not be ashamed or embarrassed of what he found you doing or how he found you living. As Christians, the scripture says we should not be caught unaware or surprised by the return of Christ because we should be watching for him. And we should be discerning of the times in which we live and we should be watching for the signs of his return, eagerly waiting for our master. Are you eagerly waiting, anticipating, expecting the return of Jesus? 
Finally, when Jesus does come again, verse 28 tells us that it will be apart from sin. In other words, when Jesus returns, it will not be as a sacrifice for sin as his first time to earth. He will not come as a sacrificial lamb as his first time to earth. But this time, the second time, it says that he will come for salvation as a conquering king and a victorious Lord and Savior. On that day, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And it says, comfort one another with these words. Let me ask you a question today. Are you ready for that day? Now, some here today may be fearful of the return of Christ. Because you know in your heart that you're not ready for the day of the Lord. The Holy Spirit has been convicting you that you've not put your faith in Jesus. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can give your life to Christ this very day and you can know that you're ready. And then you can be eager as well for the return of Christ. All you must do is call on the name of Jesus. Acknowledge your sin to him. Believe that he died for you and rose again and commit your life fully to him. If you repent of your sin and believe upon him, he will save you forever. And he will give you eternal life. Here in just a moment, we're going to have a song of response. If you're here today and you're ready to give your life to Jesus, we would invite you to make that public by walking to the front of the room during this song and taking me by the hand and saying, Josh, I'm ready to be a Christian. I'm ready to follow Christ. If you're here today and you're ready to follow the Lord in baptism, to to make your profession of faith public, or if you're ready to unite with this church and membership as we serve Jesus, that's what this time is for as well. I'm going to ask us to stand at this time. I'm going to ask James and our musicians to come back to the platform. And we're going to have our song of response. If you're here today and you're ready to respond, then I encourage you to, to walk to the front and take me by the hand. If you need to pray about anything at all that's going on in your life, that's what this time is for as well. Let me lead us in a brief prayer and then we'll have our song of response. Father, thank you for this time that we've had together in your word. I pray now, God, that you would help us to be obedient. Lord, if there is anyone here today to whom your spirit is speaking and calling, I pray, God, that they would be open and receptive to that call, that they would come, that they would give their life to you this very day, that they might know that they have eternal life in your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for Jesus, our great high priest. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.